This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800, or the other support services listed on our website at wheelercentercom forward slash better off dead. For legal reasons, the words of parliamentarians spoken in this episode are being performed by actors. Death is the last intimate thing we do. So much was said in Victoria's parliamentary debate about the people who would choose voluntary assisted dying were it to be made legal that they could not possibly know their own minds. I do not believe that an individual who's facing such enormous pressure and stress is capable of making a decision to end their own life. That the burden of possessing life-ending medication would be too much for them. If I was in that situation, I would probably think about it every hour. Will I take it now? Will I take it tomorrow? Will I take it after I've watched my favourite TV show? That they would be pushed into ending their lives by hard-hearted relatives... Sometimes the relatives might be wanting to encourage the person to take their medicine, or take their poison, I should say. Or that they should never even need to make such a choice because palliative care would provide for them. Advances in palliative care medicine have been prodigious, to the point where well-managed cases under best practice palliative care can eliminate physical pain and discomfort. If I was in that situation, I, I do not believe well that an individual who's facing such enormous pressure and stress is capable so of making decisions in their own life. Why don't we just let these people speak for themselves? Meet Ron, Fiona, and Peter. I'm Andrew Denton. You're listening to Better Off Dead. The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. The perfect combination of the eugenic impulse. The devaluation of We lives. just don't talk about it. Against the invasion of we death. We played the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control the me. The police are obliged to charge me. Away. Well, what the hell can you do? Uh, murder, manslaughter, to Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. None of us knows how our death is going to be. All we know for sure is that it will be ours and ours alone. The three people's stories you're about to hear are linked by only one thing, a law that has enabled them to choose the day and the manner of their passing. It was a June morning, bit of mist around, but a beautiful day, and I will never forget the sight of that ship coming down centre Sydney Harbour. It's something that's been etched in my memory ever since. Ron Paul arrived in Australia in June 1962, a £10 pom from Wolverhampton on the SS Oriana. It was a moment he had dreamt of for as long as he could remember. If you know anything about Wolverhampton, it's an industrial area in West Midlands. And for some reason, when I was a little child, as they ask you, what are you going to be when you grow up? I always used to say... I'm going to be a farmer and go to Australia. Now, the two things about that are, one, I would have no idea what farming was about. Secondly, as a nine-year-old, where the hell is Australia? (laughs) Now 77, Ron still can't explain what put the idea in his nine-year-old head. The only thing I can think of is my grandmother had two sisters in Adelaide who used to send tin fruit to us during the war. But now here he was, an Aussie farmer. Cattle and horses was my speciality. Five years later, he married an Australian girl. His son Christopher was born three years after that. A decade later, the marriage ended in bitter circumstances. Ron moved out of his home in a small Hunter Valley town in New South Wales. Christopher chose to live with his mum. At a low point in his life, a friend reached out to Ron. Her name was Sue. She was a very strong woman. A spade was a spade. And we just hit it off. We were married in 85. And in all those years, we never went to bed angry. Ron became a stepfather to Sue's adult children. The two moved to Shepparton of Victoria and trained to become foster parents. If a girl wanted to give up a baby, she had a six-week window 
to make her mind up whether she definitely wanted to have the baby adopted or not. But she had to give the baby up for that time. And that's where we came in. And we have them for six weeks. Even though it's only six weeks, it must be very wrenching to have to hand a baby on to someone else. It was at first, but to talk to these people who are going to adopt these babies, you know, they were beautiful people. At times, Ron and Sue had up to four babies in their care. I was working afternoon shift and sometimes I wouldn't get home till one or two o'clock in the morning. But up on the kitchen wall was a big chart as to which baby, when they were last fed, when they were changed and all the rest. The babies didn't always fit the system because they, <laughs> they couldn't understand the rules. <laughs> When I look back, I think, how the hell did we ever do it? <laughs> but we did, and it was good. Older children were fostered too, bringing different challenges. I remember one little boy, when they first came to us, first thing Sue would do was strip them off, put them in the bath, put fresh clothes on them. But this little boy, we took his clothes off him and put him in the bin. That's how bad they were. But he also had this little teddy, and it was rotten. And he was hanging onto it like life. So while he was in the bath, she put Teddy in the bath as well and washed him. And when she put clothes on him, she took him outside and put Teddy on the line. And he sat under that clothesline until Teddy was dry. He wasn't going to part with him at all. But after that, all he needed was a bit of love. For some of these children, love had been in short supply. They come from real bad, neglected backgrounds. But once they could see that they're safe, They've got a bed to sleep in. No one's going to threaten them with anything and they're getting fed. The dramatic change that can happen in, in two or three days, all of a sudden you've got different kids all together. Over the years, it became a labour of love. I think we had 12 pre-adoptive babies and uh, kids in and out, in and out, in and out, oh, about 30, I suppose. As Ron and Sue got older, they decided to stop fostering. When Ron entered his 70s, he started to experience shortness of breath. Then, in October 2018, he found out this had a name, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Sue leapt into action. She said, right, I will get everything ready so I can look after you. But two months later, Sue was diagnosed with lymphoma. Was it a hard fight for her, Ron? Yes, and she was a fighter, I'll tell you this. Um, She was stronger than me. Their medical insurance meant Sue was well looked after. But as Paul Kelly sings, death doesn't care just who it destroys. After the chemo, she really went downhill bad. From the diagnosis till the day she died was 65 days. That was early 2019. Ron's world was shattered. But two years later, as I look at him on my screen, I see a man determined to be positive about the hand he's been dealt. Sitting in his kitchen with an oxygen line attached to his nose, he looks surprisingly robust for a man nearing the end of his life. Tell me about uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. What is it and what does it feel like to have it? Idiopathic is they don't know what causes it and there's no cure for it. It's just the lungs are getting harder and harder and the capacity is getting less and less for the oxygen. So it'll come to that stage where... I won't be able to breathe properly by myself. I'll just be puffing, puffing, puffing 24 hours a day. Sounds to me like being suffocated but from the inside. That's right. As long as I'm sitting here, I'm all right. If I just got up from here, walked across there and walked back, I'd have to sit here for 10 minutes to get my breath back. I'll get times I'd get a bit panicky because I can't get my breath at all. If the disease were left to run its natural course, Ron would end up in a hospital on a life support machine. If I was in your state, New South Wales, that's what would happen to me. I'd have no option. It was discussing this likelihood with his doctor that prompted Ron to look at alternatives. And I said, that is never going to happen. I'm not going to be just lying there hooked up to the machine. That's, that's not a lot. Ron's fears were for more than just himself. I don't know how much smaller the lungs would actually get to where even the machine couldn't pump air into them. And then someone's got to say, switch it off. And I'd hate to be that person who has to say to the doctor at times time, switch it off. Faced with an incurable disease, Ron decided to act. When I started getting worse, I uh, sent me off to um, the assisted dying program in Melbourne 
and that started the process. This was in late 2019. At the time, Ron didn't meet the eligibility requirements of having six months or less to live. But a year later, things changed. My specialist said, Ron, I think it's time. The next step was I had to go to an independent doctor. And for two hours, we went through it. I was asked a lot of questions and I had to explain why I wanted to do it and be clear in my intention. And then they sent a doctor up from Melbourne and we sat here at the table for two hours and we went through it all again, testing me out as to where I was. Ron was found to be eligible. And the next step is then when the pharmacist from the Peter Mac Hospital, they come up and see me. Now, they also were here for two hours discussing all the pros and cons. A Melbourne doctor wrote very much an opponent of these laws that they were very easy to access. There was no real mental health review, no palliative care pathway was the expression she used. Is that how you see things? Was it easy? No, no. I'd say exactly the opposite. See, these people haven't been through the process, right? They haven't spoken to people like myself and found out what it's all about. So it's not an easy thing. There's a lot of checks and balances in place. You have to convince them. So that's um, four, six people altogether over a period of months that you are fully understandable of what you're doing and what will happen when you drink that 30 mils of liquid. And were possible treatment options discussed with you? No, well, they know that there's no treatment for it Mm. because of the disease I've got. They know there's nothing can be done. What about palliative care as an alternative route for you? In what way? For someone, for me to go into a nursing home and be looked after 24 hours a day, that's not going to stop what's going to happen to me. Hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, the longer I can get up, get about and act normal, (laughs) as normal as I can, um, the better it is for me. Did you feel that anyone who you dealt with in the process was encouraging you to take this path? It was always the other way, that it's entirely my choice at all times. I can drop out any time I like. There's no one, not one person in the system has ever hinted, intimated or tried to persuade that I should use it. I asked Ron how he'll know when the time has come. I really don't know how bad it's going to be before I say, yeah, enough is enough. But I think I'm going to be at that stage where when I'm just sitting here doing nothing and I'm still going to get my breath. Hopefully, I'll give people a week's notice, give them the opportunity to come. Ron had given a lot of thought to how he'd like his final moment to be. I've got it all worked out. The doctor will be there. I'll mix up the stuff. And uh, because the drink is enough to bloody kill you, the taste of it, apparently. <laughs> I've got some limoncello that I made in the cupboard. It's pretty strong. (laughs) So that's what I've got planned. There's a couple of folders and it's got all the instructions of what's going to happen after I'm gone. My friends and my stepson have been told that when I do it, I'll see them beforehand, but I don't want them there when I do it. I asked Ron why. It's a private thing in many ways and it's just, I don't know, I don't want to see them there while I'm doing it. I mean, After five minutes, I go to sleep. They can come and see me. I won't know anything about it. But they understand where I'm coming from. And um, as they say, well, it's your last wishes. And who's going to deny me that? Five years earlier, when making the first season of Better Off Dead, I sat with palliative care nurse Ray Gobbold, who was suffering from the end-stage cancer that killed him. His family were in the kitchen preparing lunch, And I'll never forget the quiet way he told me that, despite all the love, dying was still a lonely experience. That thought echoed as Ron began to tell me of the things that still give him joy. My dog. Bobby. Bobby. Oh, he's the life and soul. My mates, when they picked me up from here, um, they got an olive grove out in the farm. Just going out there for the day. His mates are father and son, Paul and Brian. When Ron could no longer drive the 1967 MGB Sports Tourer he bought himself after Susie died, he gifted it to Paul. We've been mates for a long time. Now, they phone me up at least twice a day, every day, and um, they visit me at least three times a week. Yeah, I look forward to their visits because it does get... I spend many hours just sitting here by yourself. Everything's going through your mind. 
of where you've been, where you've come from, and what's in front of you. And um, not being able to do the things I used to do, like to do, enjoy doing, it does get to me a bit. And um, you do get some dark thoughts. And then you think, no, 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 no. No, you're better than that. And you get on top of it. One of the boys will phone up and you're talking on the phone and it's all gone if you've got about it. There'll be people that listen to this who'll hear what you've just said and think, we can help restore meaning to this man's life so you don't feel lonely. Would that make a difference to you? It's only a couple of times that I've got in that situation. Most of the time, I'm on top of it. Most days, Ron gets home help and meals on wheels. There's also his at-home palliative nursing care, not nurses, angels, he calls them. And he knows if he wants it, hospital palliative care is there too. I've only got to pick up the phone and I can arrange it. If I thought I needed it, I would get it. He still writes frequent letters to the local paper, the Shepparton News, who put him on the cover recently under the headline, Ron's Final Choice to Die. I asked him what the response had been. I had quite a few phone calls and emails, all positive. And the thing that got me was people saying how brave I am. I said, I'm not being brave. Bravery doesn't come into it. Everyone's going to end up there one day. And if I have a choice of how you go, how many people would have would like that choice? Because of the disease I've got, I'd hate to be in any other state. At least I'm on the program. It's all sitting there in the cupboard. Should the time come, I can phone up the doctor and say, right, well, time's time. And it's given me peace of mind knowing that. How long do you reckon you have, Ron? I'll be lucky three months. Three months. What would any of us do with such a thought? Having the life I've had, I'm thinking, well, it's a sorry way to have to go. But being a realist and a practical person, that's the way I'm going to go. I I don't like it, (laughs) ending this way. (coughs) But, (coughs) excuse me, um, life's, life's like that. And... So, righto, well, this is the way I've got to go. This is the way I'm going to go. And make the best of it. When you've got a terminal disease, there's no rainbow at the end of this, but I'd rather go my way than the hard way. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Fiona McClure. Um, lovely to meet you. Fiona McClure lives and works as a real estate agent in the small town of Heathcote, about 100 clicks north of Melbourne. My name is Wim Wansink. Her partner, Dutch-born Wim Wansink, is a commercial builder. Like so many relationships, theirs began unexpectedly. They had a set of gates that needed to be stripped back so they could be powder-coated. And I think it was like five-minute speed dating. This Gentleman happened to be there and we started a conversation and immediately wheels a spark between us. I thought, she's a nice looking girl. (laughs) (laughs) And she's the right age for me because I'm 69 and she's uh, 56. That was back in 2010. 11 years later, Fiona appears on my screen as slightly built with big round glasses, short cropped, dark brown hair only recently grown back and a million watt smile. Everything about her, from her drop earrings and round-necked navy dress to her precision with words, speaks of a woman who believes in presenting well. By contrast, Wim, stocky and with an impressive thatch of silver-grey hair, seems slightly rumpled. What is instantly clear, they make a great pair. I needed to be the age I am to have enough experience in life to cope with Wim, with all the practical and endless possibilities that a Dutchman brings, but there's not a no in their life. It's, okay, how are we going to do it? Wim, why do you think you go so well together? Oh, because we don't argue. We don't hold any grudges and uh, we enjoy each other's company. You both seem, is matter of fact a a fair description? Hmm. Yeah. I can be blunt. It doesn't always suit people. I either look good in a dress or I don't look good in a dress. So it's, there's no maybe, um, oh, yes, oh, don't you look lovely, darling? It's, mm. <laughs> So you have asked the question, do I look good in this, and been told no. 
I don't have to ask the question. <laughs> I'm already told. <laughs> Fiona's easy laugh, the playfulness between them, the fact that she looks, well, healthy. These are not what I'd anticipated. So can you give me a, a map of your body and where the cancers are? Yes. Started off in 2017. It was a tumour of the upper intestinal tract and they removed that and then I went back to real estate and normal life and fantastic. Normal life only with a clock ticking loudly in the background. Every three months Fiona would have a checkup. And then uh, at the end of 2019 uh, the scans that came back it was in both ovaries, the inner lining of the abdomen and I have um, a large right. mass in the rectum. And in your lungs now. Oh it's now in my lungs that's right yeah minor detail. Yeah. I, I, detail. I've got to say, uh, I was quite surprised when I first set eyes on you. You yeah. look very well. Part of it is um, I, I'd forgotten just how tight I had got before this colostomy. A colostomy. Who doesn't blanch at the thought? I must confess, the colostomy gets in your head because it's so awful and you can't wear the clothes you wore before and being a girl, that's a big thing. But it's made Fiona's life better and perhaps longer, even as the cancer continues to do its work. I lost a huge amount of weight. I used to run about 72, but I'm, I'm down to 56. Her hair has started to grow back, but the treatment that stripped it from her has come at a cost. The chemotherapy last year caused nerve damage, so I have pins and needles in my fingers. If there's a drop in temperature, my left leg just goes crazy, bounces around it, just the nerves, and this fire comes out of my ankles, and uh, it's just so hard to sleep. The clock of Fiona's life is now more than just ticking. To get the draft, I have to have less than six months to live. The draft. Lethal medication Fiona is entitled to under Victoria's voluntary assisted dying law. My doctors are amazed that I'm still looking okay, but then I'm probably only two months into the six months. So who knows? If I were somebody sceptical about assisted dying and I met you, I would think, <laughs> yes, you've got cancer and that's terrible, but but you look okay, why would you be choosing this path? My first husband had bowel and liver cancer. It was two and a half months from diagnosis to gone. That last 10 days was pretty horrendous. And I'm planning the fact that that will likely happen at some stage for me. Fiona's first husband died in 2001 when Fiona was 37. I asked her what those last 10 days looked like. He was in a um, very good hospital in Bendigo, had the best of medical care, but he was in and out of consciousness and he couldn't take morphine. And just such incredible pain. And then 10 days of downhill and watching him because they didn't don't feed them and everything's turned off and they just wait, really. He was a big man, nearly six foot and pretty solid. And by the end, I could pick him up. As if this memory isn't scarring enough, Fiona saw the same thing happen to her father when cancer got into his bones. My father's was three years and I, I don't want that for anyone. He was six foot four and he again became just a skeleton. I asked Fiona when it became clear to her that this was the path she wanted to take. So I had three lots of chemotherapy last year and then to be told at the end of November that there was no other option but basically go home and smell the roses. And when your oncologist has a very sad voice, um, you know things aren't good. And when, when you look at the scans and all the masses are growing um, and it's moved into your lungs, then, yes, you, you know that things aren't good. The best hospital, I think, in, in Australia has sent me home without further treatment. I think that says it all. Why is palliative care not necessarily the right path for you? If I have to rely on other people to toilet me, to shower me, if I can't live in a dignified way, and also if the pain is too much. The drugs don't do anything for the nerve damage. It, it just hurts. But if it gets to the stage that it's, it's constant, yeah, that's... The right. care in the end, I think, is that you're lying there like a drug zombie. Hmm. And you might be lying there for two months as a drug zombie. What's the point of that? For Fiona and Wim, the choice of assisted dying guarantees them something they believe medicine can't. It's dying with dignity. Yes, that's right. It really is. Uh, to get the draft, 
Fiona first spoke with one of the care navigators, a team of nurses and social workers who guide patients through the assessment process. I had about an hour and a half conversation that they were to explore the options and the information that she sent me was fantastic. There was no pressure that I had to do this or I told I had to do that. I'd just go home and, and read up on it. After doing that, Fiona put herself forward for assessment. I had to see two doctors. I had to give permission for my oncologist to forward all my scans. So they had access to my medical history. And the interviews were, I would say, an hour, hour and a half each. And they can come up with other strategies, whether it's pain strategy or another course of treatment that maybe the oncologist team had not thought about. The first doctor gave me two other options and I've, I've taken them both. And that's why I, I had the colostomy bag. Fiona's life, she discovered, had been hanging by a thread. Because I, one of my cancers is, is in the rectum. We found out that if I'd got a blockage, that I wouldn't make it. Literally just eating a, a tomato skin was enough to cause a blockage. Or skin of a blueberry, that's the precipice I was sitting on. So the option of painful way to go out, colostomy bag, mm, okay. The other treatment option she used was a different form of pain relief. Neither of them have given me a, a cure, but they've improved my life. At any time, did anyone encourage you towards VAD? It had to be me every time. It needed to be uh, my questions and they, I needed to prove that it was me wanting it rather than I wasn't being coerced. Uh, there was no benefit to William or anyone else if I took the drug. I'm not even allowed to be involved because of the beneficiary potential. But it, it was a big thing that, that they had to see that I had chosen that path. And how did you prove that to them, Fiona? The same stories I suppose I have with you, that I've seen several people die and I would like to go out with dignity. Uh, is part of your thinking that you wish to farewell those you love as you are not as what you've described with your first husband or with your father. Yes, it's very well said. I'd like to grow up in a pretty dress with a pretty pink lipstick and having just had a latte with a girlfriend. So that, that would be a great way to go. And still looking forward to the glass of champagne after I take the draft. Uh, French. French. <laughs> French. <laughs> French champagne. It's become a big thing in this household told that there was nothing more that they could do. Wim said, okay, only French champagne in this house from now on. So that's all it is. Fiona is grateful for the way her choice has been supported. I've been very impressed with the whole process. Everyone has been kind, knowledgeable, respectful, able to discuss the options. There was no sense of urgency. It's not just something that you decide now and it's going to be available tomorrow. There are prohibitive steps in there that will stop a lot of people doing it, but if someone really feels that they need it, um, it is available. And for Fiona, knowing that is everything. I, as I said, I do not have to use it, but it's there. And that's such peace of mind. How are you going to know the time's right? I've been advised that the tumours will continue to grow because they're all in my abdominal cavity, apart from the one in my lungs, they will end up taking up all the room there. So that will cause extreme pain or just inability to function. And um, that will be the trigger for the conversations with my family and with my nurse practitioner to book a bed at the little local hospital mm. and then go in there and um, take the draft. And the champagne. And the glass of champagne. I'll pour my little 30ml draft and then you have your champagne chaser afterwards. And then I'll be asleep within about five minutes. So it's not long. Fiona has planned every detail of her farewell. I've written my eulogy. I've chosen my flowers. There's no viewing, just a nice shroud. Uh, I've got the plot. I've already asked for where we're going to have the wake. We, you notice the we. I'll be there somewhere. <laughs> and uh, yes, it's all there. I'm organised. What may sound hyper-organised to some, for Fiona, is an act of love. I know that I'm going to die. Uh, Wim's going to go to pieces as soon as I am. I'm trying to make it as pain-free, as, as simple as I can for my loved ones. As this matter-of-fact woman describes the end of her life, I see courage. But that's not how Fiona sees it. 
I know that things are happening within my body that I can't control, but I will continue and put on um, a pink lipstick and a pretty dress and live life as long as I can. There's no bravery. I'm just ignoring it. Sometimes, though, the mask slips. Some mornings I wake up and it's very hard to get going. and it's Sometimes um, it gets on top, yeah. Yeah, it does. And it's just too difficult. Mm. But then I'm a glass half full person. Before Christmas, I thought it could have been any day. But, yeah, I'm feeling good now. Wim, you just said some days it gets on top of Fiona. What do those days look like? Oh, it, it never lasts long. Uh, she'll have a bit of a week and then she'll say, well, I'm over it. And she, she moves on because she's a very, very strong person. You're, you're both very, as I said before, matter of fact, and there's a lot of uh, laughter. When do you allow yourselves to reflect on, on life and on mortality? Oh, it sort of creeps up on you. Mm. Wim gets very sad, so it's no good for Wim if I get too sad because he, he gets in the doldrums and you know, he, he can cry at the drop of a hat. So I, I try to be upbeat because there's nothing we can do to stop this. I'm here, I'm going to enjoy the time I have. Well, I admire your strength of character and that's what you were saying, Wim, that uh, Fiona's a strong woman. I can see now that Wim is crying. Covering for his tears, Fiona slaps his thigh as if to say, it's all right, I'll be strong for both of us. That's as I said, I'm not going to be around to look after him well. We don't know who's going to check out first. You, ne- you never know in life. And I, I have a goal. Um, I want to live another seven years. So that's my plan. So even though the scans show that everything is on the move and it doesn't look good, I don't want to know the day that I'm going to die yet. I intend that to be the best part of seven years away. And when it comes, how does she see that final day? Hopefully we can have some good music, but it will be a case of having admitted that it's just too too painful. It will mean having told my sister and my mother what I plan to do. So for all my planning, it will be sad. Do your mother and sister know that you have the draft? And and yes. what and what is their Absolutely. what is their view of what you're doing? Total support. They're only regretful that it's not available in New South Wales mm. and that it wasn't there for my father. What stays with me about Fiona? Her complete lack of self-pity. So there's, there's really nothing left on my bucket list. Got a, a gorgeous husband, got a beautiful garden, got beautiful roses. Heath gets a lovely community. Yeah, can't ask for more than that. I went to see um, a school concert when I was 12, Max Mary and the Meteors, and I was just transfixed. And I thought, man, I want to be that guy. Got a guitar, and I've basically been a muse over most of my working life. The first thing that strikes me about Peter Jones, better known as Frankie to his friends, is that he's straight-up likeable, the kind of bloke you can imagine having a drink and a good yarn with. I had a band called The Real McCoys, and we were sort of a hard country rockabilly band. And we used to play at Inflation Nightclub in Melbourne, but it didn't start till 1am. So we'd get a lot of other musos who would come after their gigs and come and sit in with us. We just didn't know where the night was going to end, and those gigs were pretty special for me. The second thing that strikes me, he's struggling. On my screen, he's propped up against pillows, There's an oxygen line snaking up his chest, around the back of his head and into his nostrils. His face, like his thinning white hair and goatee, is so pale it all but bleeds into the white wall behind him. For the hour we are online, it is clear that simply talking is hard work. But what I'm most conscious of is that the hour he's giving me is one of the very few he has left. That's because Peter knows exactly what day he's going to die, or, as he puts it, Taken off on the... uh... 28th of this month, which is March. It's a Sunday. That's just three weeks still to live. 500 hours left in a lifetime. When you tell someone, hey, uh, guess what I'm doing on the 28th? I usually have to hang up and ring him back in a day or two. 
How did the former frontman of the Real McCoys find himself at 66 in an aged care facility 30 minutes drive from Melbourne's CBD, measuring the last days of his life? Well, I was born uh, with chronic bronchitis and I grew up in a family who smoked and I was a smoker as well. About 15 years ago, I got diagnosed with emphysema. It's been a gradual slip slide since that period. A slip slide that goes by the name of... COPD, which is chronic obstructive airway disease. Can you give me a sense of what it feels like to be you um, on a day like today? Normal day, it's like walking around with a straw in your mouth for the whole day, trying to suck in enough air. That's the closest I can give. It affects every part of your life. Like doing my teeth, I get exhausted, changing my clothes. Having a shower, I've got to take in oxygen. Peter started thinking about assisted dying a couple of years ago, before Victoria's law came into effect. I was at a palliative care hospital. I'd gone in there with another bout of pneumonia and things weren't looking too good in terms of coming out of there on two feet rather than in a plastic bag. He contacted Melbourne doctor Rodney Syme, an outspoken advocate for assisted dying. Dr Syme had openly admitted to illegally supplying life-ending drugs to terminally ill people who were suffering. Peter had a question for him. If he could help me. I was at that stage where I I didn't want to um, pursue my life any longer. I didn't want to go through the same suffering. Dr Syme said he would help. But Peter began to think of his daughter, Haley. Well, she was a lawyer in her 30s. She's never given me one day of grief. You know, I've never had to worry about her for one day in my life. She's the love of my life, yeah. For Peter, the risk of acting outside the law and of involving Haley in that felt too great. Being a lawyer could place her in a difficult situation. So Peter shelved his plans and was discharged from hospital. I had another bout of uh, pneumonia again and back into palliative care. Stayed there for six weeks. It was a familiar, grinding cycle of illness, one that had lasted for years. In and out of hospital, going into one place, they get you back to a, a reasonable level of health. And then within three months, you're back to where you were. How helpful has palliative care been to you? And, and did you consider it as your option rather than VAD? And my experience in palliative care was not great. Getting your message across, especially to doctors, and, and, and I know they do a great job, but it was getting more difficult to, if you want more drugs to alleviate pain or relieve the symptoms. It was always a fight to try and get extra things, and it shouldn't have to be like that. So the thought of whizzing out of hospitals and, and palliative care wards till the last just doesn't appeal to me at all. Peter had looked at all the other alternatives too. I couldn't do lung reduction surgery um, because of where the holes are in my lungs. I wasn't interested in doing a lung transplant at 60. It's just a high infection rate, mortality rate, a long recovery rate. I asked what life would look like if the disease were left to run its course. There's no cure for it. Your lungs don't regenerate. There's only one direction that you have. Your health can only go south. I would be probably bedridden the whole time, massive amounts of morphine, antipsychotics. I'm on antidepressants as well. It's not a life to find attractive at all. So I made the call to go this way. To support his application, Peter had long-established medical relationships to call on. I have a long history with my lung physician and he has... More than 15 years of x-rays and lung function tests that show a, a steep decline every time I go to the stage now where the last time I saw him, he said, well, you don't need to do any more lung tests because there's nothing there to test. So I ended up getting a second opinion from another specialist who made their own observations and, and I was fortunate enough to get the support from those specialist and my local doctor who um, helped guide me through the process. Would you describe it as a thorough process? Yeah, it's very thorough. There's no little loophole you can jump through to, to try and swing the system in your favour. 
every dot's got to be there, every T's got to be crossed. Uh, if it's not, they just send it back until it is. Any time, did you feel that anyone was encouraging you to follow this path? No, no one's ever suggested to me that this is what you should be doing. That's never occurred. It's a path that I've looked at for a long time, so I'm quite prepared mm. for what lay ahead, you know. Did anyone remind you that you didn't have to do this if you didn't want to? Yeah, I get, I get told that regularly by my GP and also the VAD navigator just because I've signed on and have the medication. It's always been told to me that I can send it back. You mentioned before you're on antidepressants. Uh, again, people that oppose these laws often uh, paint a picture of people like yourself who wish to end your life doing so primarily because you're depressed. Do you believe it's had any effect on your decision? No, I don't. it hasn't had an effect on my decision. My COPD was well advanced before. Uh, the depression issue was discovered. Uh, that was uh, the depression that existed since my early teens, but I've never recognised it. And I spent a good 20, 30 years of my life with real highs and lows. And the medication that I was put on just put, put everything on a yeah. one more even keel. As we're talking, my mind keeps coming back to that date. How did you choose March the 28th? I spent weeks trying to figure out a date and I'd get an, a day in my head and it'd be like, well, I'm away that week. How about the week after all, you know? And I'm, an, I'm, I'm a very accommodating person. Oh, yeah, well, I suppose I could, uh, you know, three and four a week, that's no problem. And it was just going on and on. And, and the doctor said to me, well, what are you doing? He said, you just bloody make the date and they fit around you. That's how it goes which was quite true. And um, I figured, look, it's going to be hard whatever day it is, so just pick a day. So that's what I did. It's a Sunday. It'll be just after lunch. How was it for you telling people? My family was difficult at first. And as you know, you only have a handful of really good friends in your life. I've told them. But beyond that circle, I've kept it to myself because it's very demanding on your time. There's no advantage, I think, to tell people that it's going to happen or only make them more distressed. Try and sum things up in a nutshell with people on the phone and it's like too hard. Did anyone you tell uh, struggle with your decision? Everyone's been taken aback, although not surprised. Peter has found that one of the advantages of knowing the date is that you can plan for it. It's been good um, because you get to write your own eulogy. Funeral's already been organised. I've got the black Cadillac coming to take me away. I actually had a ride in it (laughs) beforehand. Took it for a test drive. It's a ripper. A big V8 warble. This guy imported the car from California and it's a purpose-built hearse. Straight out of the Munsters it is. It's black and the Rejo's R.I.P. You said before that uh, you're focusing on enjoying life as much as you can. What are the things that are giving you joy? It's been good catching up with people, although it is tiring. Sleeping, (laughs) staying up late and watching movies about World War II. Don't ask me why. Hitler's got in my brain the last three weeks and I've been watching everything from, you know, Hitler's underpants to Hitler's career in the Boy Scouts. It's just endless material there. So, um, yeah, that's been fun. I ask, who'll be with him on the 28th? I'll have seven people here on the day with me, family members and their partners and my my daughter, of course, and her mother. I'm going to send me off with a song called Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny. That's a pedal steel and guitar instrumental. I'll speak to everyone individually for a couple of minutes And then those who want to come in while I have the medication uh, are welcome to come and sit with me. And then um, that'll be it. I'll be off. How often do you think about the the 28th? I imagine if I was in your position, my mind would be travelling there quite a lot. I've been kept pretty busy 
organizing your own funeral takes a lot of work. I don't look really towards the dates. It'll come when it comes, and I'm just trying to enjoy the time I have left. And then, hesitation. It turns out there is one thing about the 28th Peter has been thinking deeply about. I'm still a bit, you might be able to help me, Andrew, I'm still a bit confused about this, you know, the the end-of-life situation when people take the medication. What I've read is, you know, the family gather around and it's a really lovely moment and everyone's happy and I'm, I'm sort of looking at that thinking, I can't see it as a kumbaya thing, you know. I imagine it's a bit darker than that. It's different for everybody. Some people I've spoken to describe it kind of as a kumbaya thing. It's very beautiful. Some people are really um, distressed by it. Yeah. Uh, uh, some people find it very hard to get their head around the knowable finality of it, like yeah. it's just going to happen on this day at this hour. It's very different for each family, for each individual. I imagine you're asking that because of your own family. Especially my daughter, yeah. I mean, my brother and sister, um, everyone's very supportive. They understand it. It's taken a while for it to sink in, but they all get it. They know how quick I am, how much I struggle. My daughter's going to lose someone she loves very much, as I am. That's my biggest fear. I don't know how, how I'll deal with that at the moment either. It is such an understandable fear. The actual death itself I'm looking forward to because yeah. I've no more suffering but saying goodbye to those people who who love you the most, that's going to present a few issues, I imagine. When you've spoken to Haley about this, um, how has it been for her? Very difficult. I can't talk at length about it. I've had to sort of just give her little chunks to bring her on board, you know, with organising funerals and this and that and the other. Um, but I can't go too deep with things because we both get very emotional. Mm. But that's getting better as the day draws nearer. I think she's starting to get her, her head around that, that it's, an, it's actually a reality now. I think it is... Very difficult, but if this helps, I do believe from the majority of people I've spoken to that whatever the range of emotions, there is, particularly in a family like yours where there's nobody who's at odds with your decision, that it is also a moment of intense love. Strip back to that. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's that's a good good um, advice and a good angle there. For you and Haley, that's... I think it's fair to say your most important relationship, yes? Yeah, sure is, yeah. You and Haley, it just helps to think about it this way. Yes, it is the end of your life, but it is a moment of unvarnished, absolutely honest love between the two of you. And there is nothing in between that moment for you. Yeah, well said, mate, well said. I'll keep that on board. As I write this, it's now March 16th. Peter has 12 days left to live, and the heartbreak about Haley and his voice will not leave my head. Whatever assisted dying may be, painless or peaceful, beautiful or merciful, it is no golden ticket. You still have to say goodbye to your one wild and precious life. In my, my own mind, I've had a good life. I've got a wonderful daughter. I've made some great friends. You know, I've made records, I've written plays. I've done everything that I've ever dreamt of doing as a, as a kid. You know, I haven't left anything behind. And I think I'm a good person. You know, it doesn't sound like much, but to be a good person, it doesn't take a lot of effort and it makes a big difference to people's lives. Do you reckon anything's on the other side? No, mate. I think once it's over here, that's it. But, hey, if there's a hole out there and takes me to a new world, well, great. Peter, I really appreciate you giving me uh, an hour of your precious time. Um, I hope uh, the next few weeks are are good weeks for you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks for the opportunity, mate. Two days after finishing this episode, ten days before Peter takes off, an email arrived from him out of the blue. 
he'd heard I'd been crook. Wishing me a speedy recovery, he wrote, I thought I'd cheer you up with some artwork of mine that is the back page of my funeral program. Then a hand-drawn picture of two dancing skeletons, male and female, doled up to go, martinis and cigarettes in hand. Above them, the words, Till death do us party. Take, take me away I am young at heart But too old to stay Take, take me away To the holy dark I'm not afraid If you'd like to support the work of Go Gentle or find out more about us, go to our website at gogentleaustralia.org.au. In the next episode of Better Off Dead, the pharmacists who deliver Victoria's life-ending medication. Look, I've tasted it. Well, everyone in our team has to taste it. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean you've tasted it? How do you hand someone medication knowing it will kill them? We've all been in circumstances where we've sort of had to eyeball the other pharmacist and go, can you take over for a few minutes? Who are the people they meet? They're at the end of a long journey and they know exactly what they're doing. And how do they say that last goodbye? There's no easy way. You know, it's not a normal goodbye. Season two of Better Off Dead is created, written and presented by Andrew Denton with Beth Atkinson Quinton, Martin Peralta, Kiki Paul, Steve Offner and production assistants from Alex Gow. It is a co-production of Go Gentle Australia and The Wheeler Centre. Follow wheelercentre.com forward slash betteroffdead to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode.